News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. For the next four weeks, everyone is encouraged to stay in close touch with family and friends remotely, if at all possible. That is the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, talking about the new regulations coming into effect in that province. They've expanded their mask mandate now to all over the province. They've imposed new restrictions on visiting care homes, and once again, they have reduced gathering sizes. So let's talk about what is going on in Saskatchewan. Joining us now is Alison Bamford, Global News Regina journalist. Alison, thanks for being with us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Can you give us an idea of what the caseload is like right now? What has been going on in Saskatchewan? Yeah, absolutely. Really, in the last month, our cases have just skyrocketed like uh, places all across Canada. Really, um, our active cases right now are up 500% since a month ago. So right now that's sitting at over 2,000 active cases. Um, I believe we've averaged about 190 new cases a day in the last week. Um, and it's really only expected to get worse. We've heard from health professionals over and over again that we seem to be on the same trajectory as Manitoba, but we're just about three weeks behind them. So right now we know Manitoba has the highest active case rate of COVID-19 per capita in the country. Uh, yesterday, uh, Premier Scott Moe saying we still have some time before we get there, um, but that is the reason for imposing these these new restrictions is hopefully we can slow the spread um, and don't have to, mm-hmm. to go into a full lockdown like Manitoba is right now. So Alison, leading up to this though, what was the attitude towards you know COVID-19 like in Saskatchewan? Were there any rules? Were people paying attention to this like what was it like there, there were rules. So um, our, our chief medical health officer, as well as, well as the province, um, over the summer were very hesitant to uh, impose any mask, uh, mandatory mask restrictions, things like that. Um, but businesses themselves were imposing their own rules that way. Um, and going out in the street, you could see um, lots of people were taking that into consideration. People were wearing masks. Um, but of course, it wasn't the 100%. Um, and I think um, over the last week or so, Um, in the three largest cities, Saskatoon, Regina, and Prince Albert. Um, Mandatory masks were imposed in those cities. And then on Monday, it became mandatory in all communities uh, with 5,000 people or more. Now, yesterday, uh, coming into it, um, all communities will now have to uh, wear masks in public places starting Thursday. And what are things like in the hospitals? Uh, So right now, the uh, hospitals, we have 71 people uh, hospitalized due to COVID-19. And that record has been set and broken every day for the last nine days. Uh, We have 15 people in the ICU. Uh, Seven of them are in Saskatoon, which is about a third of their ICU capacity. Uh, We've heard from uh, the nurses union that ICUs right now are operating um, at about 130% capacity. And they're actually having to take um, some Saskatoon patients and divert them to different ICUs across the province because they're so full. Ooh, okay, that sounds a little bit scary, right? Especially if you, they're three weeks behind Manitoba. Uh, now, I understand that Absolutely. doctors have also asked for a two-week lockdown. What are the chances that might happen? 
well, after uh, hearing from the premier yesterday, it's still um, not sounding very likely coming from him. We've heard from uh, health professionals asking for this temporary lockdown. They're saying it'll give us a chance to, to kind of reset our contact tracing and testing numbers could catch up to the demand, as well as it would help relieve some of our ICU capacity issues there. Um, premier Scott Moe has been hesitant uh, since he imposed the first lockdown um, when the pandemic originally began. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still recovering from, you know, the 15,000 jobs uh, that were kind of lost during that. And he's worried um, about losing more jobs as well as just the mental health impacts um, for workers being out of work that long. So he's been very hesitant to right. um, even talk about a second lockdown at this point. Uh, but yesterday was the first time he said we may have to consider it um, in the weeks ahead as we go down this course. All right, Allison, thank you for the update this morning. Thank you. That is Allison Bamford, Global News Regina journalist, talking about how even in Saskatchewan now, uh, they are seeing a dramatic increase in their number of cases. Uh, health officials there believe they're on the same course as Manitoba, but about three weeks behind. And remember, earlier this week, we spoke to a reporter in Manitoba telling us how dire the situation is in some areas there. Uh, they're undergoing uh, some pretty severe measures in Manitoba. Even in Saskatchewan now, they have expanded their mask mandate to the entire province. What does that mean for us? This is Mornings with Simi. You know, earlier this week, we heard from SFU psychology professor Grace Irochi. She released a report revealing the struggles that BC families with children who are on the autism spectrum are facing because of COVID-19. These families rely on professionals and not just one professional, but usually there's a team of professionals working with these families. And because of COVID, just all of these professionals pulled away because of the restrictions, right? So they were left with really almost nothing. So hearing her talk about that made us want to dig deeper into this subject because then we were also curious about how adults who are on the autism spectrum disorder are coping during this crisis. So our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak with Joette Haft, Executive Director of the Square Peg Society. That's a nonprofit charitable society that helps adults on the spectrum. Nikki asked her, what are the main challenges that she's been hearing about? The struggles have been around loneliness, that's for sure and for certain. And then um, also for those people that are uh, either embarking on any programs, so school or employment, um, if they're in a position, it sometimes is okay. In fact, in some cases, it's better. Um, And I'll explain that later. But mostly it's anybody who's looking for work or looking to engage in a school program. That's interesting. I'm curious to know if the pandemic and struggles to find employment during the pandemic exasperate problems that perhaps adults with ASD already face. Is there an issue already where there's an employment gap with adults with ASD? Um, For sure. People on the spectrum are underemployed or unemployed at much higher rates than than the average person. First and foremost, because through their school years, they've often felt that they were on a treadmill. And so they didn't have those after-school jobs in many cases, and they had issues. They had struggles during their school years. And so they may not be as well-rounded 
you know, have done extracurricular activities or had part-time jobs. And so even though many of them are well-educated and have do not have an intellectual disability, they have trouble meeting that experience, entry-level experience that's often required in jobs. And so their resume may not look as fleshed out as the average person. And so they will get passed over. Breaking down that barrier of access to employment is really tough. And that's made worse, like already in a digital age when everything is done by online resumes and online applications. They don't get a chance to get to first base where they'll get the phone phone interview or an in-person interview because they just don't look as well-rounded or as um, experienced as maybe somebody else who's not on the spectrum. So, And then there's the question of disclosure as well. Everyone wants to be judged by who they are by themselves. So they will avoid putting on their resume that they are on the spectrum because they will feel that that will mean that that's all anybody will see and they will get a chance to get to first base. So in other words, there's the stigma around being judged by that, as well as, as I said before, they want to an opportunity to pre- present themselves for who they are as they are before they are um, asking for accommodations or adjustments or being considered as a person on the spectrum. Now, that creates anxiety because they feel that there are ways in which they are different in some ways, usually small ways. Usually, these can be accommodated without additional cost to an employer, just need some consideration. But uh, nevertheless, there's tension that's created for them when applying for jobs because they feel they, um, they are holding back something fundamental to them in order to get a shot at it, to have access to employment. And that applies well for school positions or applications to uh, post-secondary programs and that sort of thing. In those programs, in those school programs, they may or may not do as well without the ability to ask questions freely, the pace at which an on line class may go may be challenging for them. Now, that may not be true for everyone. If they have the ability to slow down, replay, work at their own time, work within from the comfort of their own home, some of them may be more comfortable working from their own space and working online than they would be in person. So it does vary from individual to individual. Mm -hmm. I know you mentioned that earlier, that there may be some ways in which these workplace changes or school changes have benefited people on the spectrum. And I think that you just touched on a few of those right now. And those certainly make sense, being able to even work in environments for some that are quieter, I I imagine would be a benefit. So it's quieter, it's working from a space that they're comfortable in. It's maybe having the ability to disengage, turn off their video, to walk away in a way that would be um, socially incorrect in a real life situation. So it's, it's sometimes a safe and more comfortable uh, setting for some people. And in, in a way, COVID, coincidentally, is maybe reducing the, the stigma around remote working remotely and may create opportunities as well. That is interesting that the pandemic has, in some ways, perhaps helped some individuals on the spectrum because it is, like you said, taking away that stigma of working from home, which some people with ASD may be more comfortable doing. 
Now, I want to ask you as well about resources, because in a previous conversation that I was having with a researcher from SFU who'd recently put out some research on how caregivers and parents of children on the spectrum are dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, the topic of resources came up and a lack of resources and an ability to spend the money that they do receive the way that would suit them best. So I want to ask you about that as well. When it comes to resources, particularly government resources, which I imagine are slim to begin with anyways, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected how individuals on the spectrum access resources? Okay, so this is the area where it's particularly acute for adults. So the areas around social inclusion and uh, social opportunity, again, very limited. As we all know, our social opportunities are re- significantly reduced. For people on the spectrum who do not have a big um, entourage of people that they've taken with them from childhood, there often is are very few people outside their immediate family and as they become older and more and more independent and as adults, who wants to be on your parents' coattails? And so for, for many of these people, they spend much of their days that they're not working or in school by themselves. And that's not healthy for anyone mentally or socially. And uh, for adults, there's virtually nothing in the way of programs. And for or agencies like us, you know, you can find funding for employment programs, you can find po- uh, funding for uh, post-secondary supports and that sort of thing. It's really hard to find funding for social programs. There's a growing recognition of the impact of social inclusion on mental health, but we're not, but in terms of, you know, being back to do that, it's hard. So loneliness is a huge factor. And we have to continue to make the case that for for these individuals, while they may feel more comfortable and safe in the short term, having encounters from with people from their computer, and that's meaningful and they can learn from them and they can have real friends that way, but they're hard to find. And it's not a pattern for a happy and healthy long-term social life. And so real programs need to exist for people beyond COVID. That is Joette Haft. She is the executive director of the Square Peg Society. That's a nonprofit that helps adults who are on the autism spectrum, and they are struggling to get help, uh, just be heard uh, during this COVID-19 pandemic. This is Mornings with Simi. Everybody has their own system for picking a password. It's hard, right? Because it seems like everything these days needs a password. It's got to be updated. It's got to have one of these and one of those. I mean, they get more and more complicated. Our Nikki Reitmeyer is here with us to talk more about that this morning. Nikki, do you have a system for picking your password? I do. I have a, a couple keywords that I usually go to, and then I, I build numbers off of those. And I have a, a certain piece of uh, punctuation, a symbol that I use that if, you know, it makes you want to add a symbol or something like that, I know exactly where I'm going to put it each exactly. time. So usually nice. when I have to guess what my password is, I only have to try, I don't know, two or three, or maybe four times. <laughs> <laughs> if I have forgotten what the password is, I just kind of go through my system until I, I can figure it out that way. Right. Okay. I thought that most people did this, but given this new survey that we're going to talk about, I guess we're wrong. Most people don't do that. <laughs> when you emailed me this this morning, I read it. And, and my first thought, as soon as I saw the headline was, 
this better not be one, two, three, four, five, six again, the most commonly used password of the yeah. year 2020. And lo and behold, I open up the article, and what is the most common password this past year? One, two, three, four, five, six. And I thought, oh, come on. Haven't we gotten right. past this yet? It is, of course, that's going to be the easiest. You might as well not even have a password at that at that rate. That's so true. And so they, this was a company that analyzed like something like what, almost 300 million passwords. Uh, and that was the number one that people use. And I just thought, who and how? Like, didn't the website even stop you? Because I feel like now so many websites will challenge you and say, nope, sorry, we're not going to use that one. Nope, sorry, you got to do better than that. Mm -hmm. It's true. Or they'll say, uh, at least on my computer anyways, which is a Mac, it often says, you know, nope, not secure enough. Do you want to try again? And you go, okay, well, sure. I guess I have to try, try again. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, and you word it that way. I guess I have to try again. <laughs> the Another commonly used one was picture one. That was really popular. Uh, another commonly used one was password. Just simply uh, the no, word. No, it wasn't. Password. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you wonder why so many people get their accounts hacked into. Uh, QWERTY. So Q-W-E-R-T-Y was very, yeah. very common. One, two, three, four was very common. I love you. All in lower caps. <laughs> uh, well, in capitals too. That was very common. And then this one, a real twist password one Ooh, also clever. very common mm, yes clever. <laughs> and using your name especially if you have a common name like aaron something like that and then you add a few numbers on the back four three one something like that uh two three seven that stuff very common as well wow that's um i i like how, what do you say to people like that who get hacked and who are using that as their passwords right like if you're using one two three four, five, six, on a password for something important right now. Can you really complain if you get hacked and something goes wrong? Well, it was interesting because the experts were saying that if you have a really simple password like that, that it can be hacked in just under a few seconds, which is incredible. That's how quickly your account can be cracked into. But it would take a few days to get into a more complicated account, even a few years to crack something like job and talent. Just combining three words like that could take three years to crack. So if you just mm. make it a, a little more complicated, you could save yourself a lot of grief down the road. And it doesn't have to be wildly complicated, just something a bit more complicated. To, so you're safer. Yes, just not one, two, three, four, five, six. Or exactly. password. Picture one or password one or yeah exactly like i'm glad you have a system now i don't feel so bad but i know people who have like really good systems uh and they really like keep track of it that way and i'm always so admiring of people who do that because that takes a lot of work a lot of effort mm -hmm. it right? certainly does yeah to be one of those people all right thanks nikki this is mornings with simi now, I'm a big fan of cooking shows and a collector of cookbooks. I am always on the lookout for a new recipe and something really good to make, which is why this next story about Nigella Lawson made me laugh so hard. I mean, she's just a lovely, lovely lady. I, I hosted an event with her uh, once a few years back when she was in town to promote one of her books. So just, just an all-around lovely person. <laughs> but her latest BBC show is called Nigella's Eat, Cook, Repeat. And the most recent episode has, you know, England in an uproar over buttered toast. Now, I would willingly eat buttered toast all day long, but not the way Nigella does it. She's a very, let's say, unusual technique. Have a listen. I favor 
the two-stage buttering approach. And so far, only stage one has taken place. And that's to say, the minute this came out of the toaster and still lovely and hot, I spread it with butter so that the butter has melted down into it and it'll give it a fabulous crumpety bite. Stage two now, ready for it. I need a little more butter and it will stay in some golden patches on the surface. It's unsalted butter, which I always prefer to use, but what I need to do is sprinkle some sea salt flakes over. She's eating buttered toast and she just turned it into this twice buttered flakes of sea salt complicated recipe and people in the UK are just losing their minds over this. Now, I grew up eating this. My grandmother loved nothing more. It was a very British thing, right, to have buttered toast and tea. I would eat that three times a day if I could, if my waistline would let me. But she just turned something very simple and basic into something a little too fancy, I think, for most people. Uh, Nikki is with us. Nikki, I had to ask you about that this morning. Does that not sound ridiculous to you? As one viewer said on Twitter, Nigella showing the nation how to butter toast is five minutes of my life. I will never get back again. (laughs) (laughs) When I heard the nation was in an uproar about this, I thought, geez, you know, what did she do to this toast that was so complicated, so bizarre? How did she screw this thing up so badly that people are in an uproar about it? And then I realized, oh, a celebrity chef teaching people how to butter toast in itself is so absurd right? and so ridiculous. No wonder people are in an uproar about it. Although, with that said, I don't disagree with her about adding a little bit of salt at the end. I do that myself. On your buttered toast? Yeah, it's del- it brings out the, the flavors a bit more. It's but Okay, wonderful. but are you using unsalted butter? No, I love salt. <laughs> I know, that's what I'm saying. Like, If you have salted butter, isn't it already salty enough when you do that? Like, You just you sprinkle a little tiny bit of sea salt on top? I can't emphasize to you how much I like salt. That's true. So I saw you, you put see, salt yeah. on your pizza. And it's it's not good for my health. I'll no, it's not. <laughs> but no, back, back to the video. Back to the video. What do you said about my dietary issues, Simmy? You're right. Back I may have video. asked the wrong person. I just realized I may have asked the wrong person's opinion about this because, yeah, you'll pretty much drink the salt shaker. Uh, but but you can see why. Like I watch recipes, you know, to see something new, some new technique. I can see why people are kind of upset with Nigella Lawson about this. Is like seriously, this this is it. Will you use her butter it twice technique once when it first comes out of the toaster and again a minute later so that more butter just sits there on the surface? <laughs> no, but I'll tell you this, the technique, the one thing that I hate at my house, and this is my, my husband does this, is butters his toast heavily and then puts peanut butter on it. That to oh, me is blasphemy. No. That's yeah, just me. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you for that, Nikki. Appreciate that. That's our Nikki Wrightmeyer there. Uh, to the person who texted me and said, my mom ate bread with unsalted butter and sugar sprinkled on top. I have heard that too as a snack for a long time. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, in the earlier part of this pandemic, one of the things that British Columbia was praised for was acting relatively quickly to try to protect long-term care homes, something that was not done to devastating results in other jurisdictions. But now here we are, right in the middle of a second wave, 
And in BC, we have more than 40 care homes with active outbreaks of COVID-19, including the first on Vancouver Island, which was announced yesterday. That's 40 care homes where, you know, they're shut in, essentially. Nobody can visit. Uh, Stories of isolation and suffering. That has been heartbreaking. So how did this happen? How did cases start coming into long-term care homes when we thought we were being extra special careful about that? And what is being done? Joining us now to talk more about this is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, Terry Lake. Terry, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me, Simi. Now, I think that is the big question here is how have we allowed this to happen? What went wrong? Well, uh, studies across the world show that the correlation between community spread and uh, entrance into long-term care is very solid. So as community spread increases, we can expect to find uh, long-term care homes affected as well. And where we're seeing this absolutely tracks, uh, because Fraser Health, we have uh, 27 homes in outbreak at the moment, and we know that's the area of the province where we've seen the most community spread. So when people are going uh, to do things that we know are risky in terms of spreading the virus, uh, it impacts our long-term care homes and sometimes to tragic results. Now, you've also written a piece in the Globe and Mail uh, this week about what we you think we need to do. And the question is, why aren't we doing more testing of the people who work in long-term care homes to prevent that from happening? Well, it's a good question. I'm not sure what the answer is. Um, you know, we've uh, heard this from Safe Care BC, which is the organization responsible for health and safety and long-term care. Uh, we've heard it from the Office of the Seniors Advocate. We know that in the United States, uh, rapid uh, screening antigen testing is done in long-term care, where they've had less than half the number, proportional number of deaths uh, in nursing homes. And it's being piloted in the UK and a study in, in Ontario also points to this as a weakness in the Canadian response. So I'm not entirely sure why public health officials in BC in particular have been resistant to at least uh, piloting a screening protocol using antigen tests. Is that something that uh, long-term care homes want to do? Would employees, do you think, go, go, go along with that? Well, I don't see why not. Uh, I know that in uh, surgical centers in Washington State, for instance, uh, you, you have to do a, an antigen test every time you come to work in the morning. And, uh, you know, studies show that when these are used every day, uh, they become more and more accurate because if you may miss one on one day, you're going to catch it the next day. And we know that with asymptomatic transmission, it's so important to catch it early. So uh, I don't see any reason why if we can use this for the film industry, we can use it for sports leagues, we can use it for travel purposes, why we wouldn't use it uh, to protect our most vulnerable in uh, long-term care. So what we're doing right now then, Terry, is we're just leaving it in the hands of the employees that, listen, you're just going to have to be careful when you go out in the public, out in public. Well, we have screening protocols and, uh, you know, the, the provincial government has provided resources to bolster those uh, screening protocols, but it really is a, a questionnaire and, and, and relies on people, uh, you know, answering honestly about not feeling well about where they've been. Uh, but also, you know, if someone is asymptomatic, they may genuinely feel they're, they're not affected when, if they've been to a large wedding, for instance, uh, they may be asymptomatic, but still carrying the virus. And, and perhaps a screening test would be helpful in, in um, catching that before it gets into the, the care home. Okay, and so where are we at with that? Is that? I know you've been talking to the provincial government. I know, as you said, Safe Care BC has done the same. Any progress on that front, though? 
Well, I understand that they are piloting uh, a rapid antigen test in uh, in Vancouver Coastal, um, but that was about two weeks ago that I first heard that. I have not seen anything uh, to to determine, you know, the next steps with that. Um, you know, we have not had contact with the provincial health officer, even though that we talk to the Ministry of Health every uh, uh, couple of days, actually. Uh, but uh, we we really haven't determined or or been explained to uh, why why we haven't uh, been exploring the screening tests that are used in so many other circumstances uh, for our most vulnerable population. It's a good question. We will keep asking it. Terry, thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Timmy. Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Why aren't we doing more testing of people who work in long-term care homes, given that we now have something like 40 active outbreaks at long-term care homes around this province? What more needs to be done? This is Mornings with Simi. As community spread increases, we can expect to find uh, long-term care homes affected as well. That is Terry Lake. He's a CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. We just spoke to him about half an hour ago on the show about this concerning situation now in British Columbia where we might have once patted ourselves on the back for getting kudos and dealing with long-term care homes and COVID-19. That is not the case anymore. We have a very serious problem with something like 40 outbreaks at long-term care homes around the province. The first one on Vancouver Island uh, just announced the other day, too. And in Abbotsford, you've got more than 100 people connected to the Tabor Home Care facility there that have now also tested positive for COVID-19. Let's talk about what is going on there. Joining us now is Dan Levitt, who teaches long-term care administration at Simon Fraser University. He's also the executive director of Tabor Village. Dan, thanks for being with us. Good morning, sir. This has been a very concerning situation there at the home. Can you determine what happened? What went wrong? We've been doing testing um, for um, for people who, who work here and live here, and um, anybody who had symptoms, we were looking at them, and we expected at some point because of the numbers of people in the population that have COVID that eventually we would have a positive case here, and uh, we found that out at the beginning of the month. And since then, we've been putting in our pandemic plan, um, which has really enhanced our measures, our safety measures, protecting uh, the staff who work here and protecting the people who live here. Right. So, but clearly it's spread there. Does it just give me an idea of how dangerous this virus is? It's very difficult to contain. Um, and uh, we've gone from um, a year ago in long-term care uh, with infections, with in- influenza, where, where um, not everyone took the flu vaccine, not everyone was wearing a mask, and we, now we had to, to change um, 100% of what we're doing and uh, making sure that everyone is 100% compliant all the time is a necessity now because of how, how uh, much this virus spread so quickly. Right. So, but what was the case before? If now you're making sure everybody was 100% compliant, was, that, was it just an honor system before? Well, a year ago when, when we didn't have COVID, um, with, with influenza, um, some of this was optional, and uh, we, we weren't able to enforce it in our industry in, in British Columbia with the, the vaccination or, or mask wearing. Now it's 100% compliant, so you know, anyone who, who walks into our building is screen tested, and we've been doing that um, since um, the very beginning of the pandemic. We've been asking the self-assessment uh, questions, the BC self-assessment tool. Um, we've been checking temperatures, and everything that we are expecting staff to do, they're cohorting themselves on, on neighbourhoods, where, where they, they stay in that area for the whole shift. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we've limited the amount of interaction with staff. Um, now with our outbreak, um, all the people who live here um, are on droplet precautions. We're um, donning and doffing gowns, wearing um, our PPE, our mask, our, our eye protection, our gloves, and the seniors are now isolated in their rooms, and we're doing everything we can to prevent the spread from one senior to the next and from staff um, to staff. Now, Dan, what were the, what's the policy then for the people who work there, like when they're home? Do you ask them to be more careful when they are away from work as well? We have. Um, we've been sending out um, regular communication to our staff, and as much as possible, we've asked them to shelter in place. We've asked them to be very careful of what they're doing outside of work. And as we all know from the general population, um, I, know, I know, Simi, you've been a strong advocate around um, what we should be doing, and unfortunately, not everybody in, in our province is buying into it. And I think um, unless we can control the number of cases in the community, as you mentioned at the beginning of the segment, we're going to see more and more um, places like Tabor Home having outbreaks. And uh, our challenge is that if you have one or two in a community, um, you can probably manage them. Um, but now you have um, the challenge of um, not finding enough staff in, in the general population who can work in, um, in care homes. And then if you're bringing people in from, from home care workers into nursing homes, then at some point home care is going to um, be challenged to find people to support people in their homes. And eventually it's going to um, affect the hospitals. Um, so we really have to do something dramatically to reduce the number of cases in, in the general population. Yeah. What do you think that something dramatic is? Now we were just talking to Terry Lake and they very much believe that we should be doing, you know, specialized testing of people who work in the long-term care home kind of industry. Do you think that would work kind of the way we do with the film industry? Well, absolutely. We should, we should definitely be doing that like we do with the film industry or, or if you want to travel on an airline or if you, if you are lucky enough to be a professional athlete, um, we're testing them regularly. So we should be doing that in long-term care. Certainly anybody who comes into the building, um, you can do the oral test um, fairly quickly, get the results, and if you pass, you would come in. Um, and that's much more difficult for people who, who live in care. They may not be able to, to do that, but we're testing them currently once a week. Could we be doing that all the time? And I think that's something that will make a big, a big difference. Um, and I know there's lots of advocates and experts around the country, um, geriatricians, who are looking at this. And I really think it's something that should be available to long-term care right across the country. What kind of impact, Dan, has this had on the employees then who, who work there? This must be very tough for them. It's been very tough. Um, however, these people have chosen this profession. Um, and some of them have been working here for decades. And they're healthcare heroes. They've been going out of their way for their colleagues. Um, I spoke to some um, just yesterday, and um, they were telling me how how much they're they're being diligent about making sure that they're following every single um, PPE requirement, and and that they're making sure that their colleagues do it. They're spotting each other, making sure um, they're doing it. And um, the, the the healthcare heroes in long term care, at Tabor and across our province, um, they're doing things incredibly. Um, beyond belief, like the amount of hours they're putting in, the number of days in a row they're working, the overtime shifts, and they're making um, some spe- pretty special moments happen with um, seniors who, who, who um, are facing towards the end of their life and mm-hmm. making sure families can be there for them. And uh, they're canceling vacations, doing everything they can to be here to make sure that the best possible outcomes happen. So are you hopeful that it, it is getting under control yeah, um, I believe that we have the best possible people um, working at Tabor. Um, we've gotten tremendous support from Fraser Health, um, looking at simple things like hand washing and making sure that all the procedures are in place. And I believe when we, when we do our test results, 
on Friday that when we get them back on the weekend, I believe our case count in terms of new numbers, we're going we're to flatten the curve um, and we're going to turn this thing around. All right. Well, listen, thanks very much for your time, Dan. Thanks, Amy. Take care. You too. Dan Lovett teaches long-term care administration at Simon Fraser University, executive director of Tabor Village, where they've had more than 100 people now uh, who have tested positive for COVID-19 connected to that long-term care facility. This is Mornings with Simi. You've been hearing in the news about Vancouver City Council last night. So they approved the Climate Emergency Action Plan. And the headlines that go along with that are mobility pricing, road tolls. Are they going to charge you for coming into downtown Vancouver? We do know that NPA councillors voted against it. Joining us now is NPA councillor Sarah Kirby-Young to talk more about it. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Timmy. Good morning. Why did you vote the way that you did? Well, specifically on the mobility pricing piece and transport pricing, we heard loud and clear um, from the public with concerns about it, but really it was because we advocated for a regional approach. Um, I think that there's a couple things to remember. The other cities uh, where this has been decided to have been done, London and Stockholm, um, Vancouver is a very different context. We don't have the same transit infrastructure, and we have a lot of people who live further out because of affordability and they're traveling into the downtown core. We have more reverse commuting that's happening. Um, and we felt it was really important to have a coordinated approach with TransLink. We also heard from a lot of policy organizations like SFU Public Policy or SFU Renewable Cities and others that said that they felt that while well-intentioned, this could have unintended consequences in terms of dispersing that congestion outside that immediate core area. Now, I know there's a lot of things in that plan, but this kind of mobility pricing has gotten the most attention out of it. Uh, does Vancouver even have the ability to do mobility pricing on its own? I'm really glad you asked that because that was something that came up at council last night and I explicitly asked that question. It was the first question off the bat when we got into debate and discussion. Um, and I asked staff if we had that ability because they didn't talk about that in the presentation um, or in the report that came forward. It was very quiet. And when I asked the question directly, it's very clear Vancouver does not, under the Vancouver Charter, have the ability to do road tolling. So the only thing that the Vancouver can do without a legislative change from the province is to use some type of app as the city manager described. Um, not clear at all on how that would work, but somehow the app would track movements in and out. And that brings up, obviously, a whole host of questions of would we get a legal change from the province? Does it make sense to have technology that might potentially be different um, if Metro Vancouver is pursuing its work around transport pricing? Um, and how do those systems even work together so that you're not layering costs onto people um, and other affordability issues and we're not considering um, kind of pricing as somebody travels throughout the entire region? So then I don't understand what the point is here then of passing this with that big part in it. It, does, it doesn't even sound like it's really going to happen. Uh, this is, this is going to be years in the making. It's not, we're going to hear a lot more about this coming forward. I, I think, honestly, Vancouver is going to butt heads with TransLink. Um, because the other thing that's really important to know, and it talks about reducing congestion and giving people better transit options, but the revenue that Vancouver is projecting to raise, it is not proposing to invest in transit infrastructure. So specifically in infrastructure in terms of improving roads, potentially bus bulges, maybe you shave a minute off a bus lane, but not increasing the amount of transit that we have um, or capacity. And so in a lot of jurisdictions, the mobility pricing, there's a logic that you know people are paying for it, but it's going into providing more transit uh, and more transit availability. And so I think that's an issue as well. And I think, honestly, Vancouver will butt heads with TransLink on this um, and the other municipalities um, because it would be a revenue source. Once Vancouver has it, I mean, certainly it's, it's much harder to have discussions around how that would be shared afterwards. Right. So was there something in there that you did like, things that you think the city does need to work on? 
Yeah, I was really supportive of the pieces around green building um, and green technology. So making sure that, you know, when we're building new buildings, commercial and otherwise, uh, we're making sure that those standards are as green as they can be. And we have the lowest embodied carbon emissions. And we're looking at alternate building materials um, that are more renewable, uh, such as wood, and supporting our industries there. Um, also on retrofitting for residential. Originally, I was concerned about that because, again, you don't want to layer costs onto residents, but it's really around doing it at end of life. So when people's normal boilers or equipment expire and focusing on incentives that would help reduce cost over time. Right. But in the meantime, it's still passed. So what happens now? So um, there'll be a lot of work. Essentially, last night was, you know, endorsing a series of directions and no specific policies, no pricing schemes, no purchase of technology. Um, no specific regulations. This right. is going to be a, a lot of work and a lot of projects that so we'll all come back to council individually over various phases. So this this work is going to you know take place over a number of years. We'll see some pieces like um, green buildings and that and some regulations mm-hmm. come back more quickly. Mobility pricing is going to be years in the making. All right. Thanks very much for your time. No worries. Thank you.